We're starting a new series called The God Beyond Religion. So in this series, we're looking at how the movement of Christianity began and what that means for us today as followers of Jesus. Sometimes it helps to go back and look at how something started to see why it is important, why it has value, and to re-understand what it means for us today. So in Acts, Paul is traveling around telling people the good news that there is this new king and this new kingdom in the land. And it's one that doesn't rule with violence and fear, but it's a new king and kingdom that rules with love and mercy. So in Acts 17, Paul is in Athens. Athens was the most important city in ancient Greece. So it was kind of the intellectual headquarters of art and philosophy. It was like the hip college town with the liberal arts school. And uh, this is the place that Socrates, Plato, Aristotle all got their start and how they became famous and where they taught their philosophical schools. So no pressure, Paul. This was a really uh, high-pressure place to be when you're talking about new philosophies and new religions. And this is where Paul was sharing about Jesus. So we find him in Acts 17 in Athens. It says, while Paul waited for them, he was waiting for his buddies to come. In Athens, he was deeply distressed to find that the city was flooded with idols. Idols everywhere. Worship of the gods held together Roman culture. And they believed that the gods kept their city safe. And the worship of the gods in the temple was a huge part of the Roman economy. And they had a god for everything. There was a writer who was Roman who lived at the same time that Paul was in Athens. And he said... It's easier to find a god than a man there. There were so many idols and shrines in Athens. They were just everywhere. There were more gods than there were people. It was kind of a religiously pluralistic world. There were a lot of different gods, a lot of different religions. They allowed room for um, every different religion um, and every different god. And so they set up as many idols as they could imagine. And when Rome went in and conquered a, a kingdom, they would often adopt their gods into their own pantheon. So they're the gods a list of gods just spread and spread. It was like an all-you-can-eat God buffet. Just take your choice at whatever God that you want to worship. It's like going to the grocery store and seeing there are a hundred different kinds of lettuce and you have no idea what to decide. The options are endless. Why in the world grocery stores have a hundred different kinds of every single object? I don't understand. But Paul saw all of the lists of gods everywhere and was just completely overwhelmed and distressed. And he realized at this moment, these people here in Athens are searching for something. They're trying to find some meaning by having all of these different gods to cover everything. So Paul was in Athens. He was bothered by this. And so he went to the synagogues and he he preached in the synagogues about Jesus. And then he went into the city marketplace as well and preached in the city center. And it says, certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers engaged him in discussion Epicureans were people who, um, they challenged the idea of divine judgment. They challenged the the idea of God. They were kind of like the atheists of the day. The Stoic philosophers believed in this divine uh, wisdom, divine logos. Um, So they were a little bit more on the spiritual side. They had a lot of value and reason and logic. They're really smart guys, philosophical experts. So they say to Paul, what an amateur What's he trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. And they said this because he was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him into custody and brought him to the council on Mars Hill. 
What is this new teaching? Can we learn what you are talking about? 500 years before Paul, Socrates was in Athens. Socrates was taken into custody for the same reason that Paul was. He was a proclaimer of foreign gods. They took him to Mars Hill. Mars Hill was kind of the city council. Mars Hill was where, um, back in the day, before Jesus, they would try people for crimes. And when, during the time of Jesus and after, it became kind of a, a meeting place to debate. It became the place to uh, uh, present a new God that you wanted to be included in the list of Roman gods. And so they thought maybe Paul was wanting to present this new God, Jesus, as a list of Roman gods. They took him into custody and took him to Mars Hill. Uh, Mars Hill in Greek is Areopagus. Literally means the hill of Ares. Ares was the Greek god of war. Mars was the Roman god of war. So Rome took over Greece and they pretty much just changed the name and called it Mars Hill. And now we have churches all over the country called Mars Hill. <laughs> and some of them offer a little PTSD in this area, I hear. Um, but originally that's what Mars Hill was, was that kind of uh, city council uh, in Athens. And so this is where Paul is presenting his story of Jesus. Acts 17, 20. You've told us some strange things, and we want to know what they mean. And they said this because all Athenians, as well as the foreigners who live in Athens, used to spend their time doing nothing but talking about or listening to the newest thing. Athens was like the Facebook and Instagram of the ancient world. It's where you go to find out all of the latest information. I just heard uh, Ryan Reynolds and Blake Lively were making out on that chariot over in Athens. Did you hear that? All the city gossip about politics and society and who's who and religion and gods happened in Athens. So they were curious what Paul was talking about. So Paul stood up in the middle of the council on Mars Hill and said, people of Athens, I see that you are very religious in every way. As I was walking through town, carefully observing your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. What you worship is unknown, I now proclaim to you. This passage has been used, I, I was taught growing up, this is kind of an example of how to evangelize, how to share uh, Jesus with people, how to witness. Notice when Paul witnesses, when he evangelizes, the first thing he does is he finds common ground with the people. He doesn't go in there with a sign that says repent or perish. This is a picture I took at the farmer's market in Issaquah. When we moved here, I thought, there's not anyone. No one's going to be on the street with signs. This is you know, a much more progressive area, right? So I was really surprised to see this. Is this a good evangelizing strategy? Turn or burn? What I find interesting is that Paul didn't do that. He didn't stand up and say, accept Jesus into your hearts or you will burn in hell forever. He finds common ground. He says, I see that you all value religion and spirituality. I see that you're searching for something, that you're searching for meaning. What would it look like if we... What's also interesting is that Paul doesn't even mention Jesus by name, according to Luke's account. 
And when he does mention Jesus, he, he waits till the very end of his sermon, his message. How would evangelizing in the Christian world look different if we followed Paul's strategy in politics, in religion? We approach somebody of a different belief system, different value system. First thing that we should do, follow Paul's advice, find some common ground. What do we both value? What do we both want in life that we can agree on? And then you can kind of move on from there. That was a little bit of a sidebar. There's a different picture of sharing the good news and I was, I was taught growing up. Find common ground first. Don't just say, how's your walk with Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Have you accepted Jesus in your heart? Do you know where you're going to go when you die? And maybe not the best place to start. So they had this inscription, an idol of the unknown God. It's like they, they didn't want to offend anyone in case they missed a God on the list. They wanted to have a place, the unknown God, for anyone who could worship the God that maybe they didn't have the name of. So they had the unknown God in case we missed one. It sounds kind of crazy, over the top, excessive, the the number of gods that um, they had in Athens for everything. Maybe it's not that different in our society, I wonder. Because when I think about it, an idol is it's just something that we put our hope into, that we place some hope and trust into. I was thinking of some of the things that I, I put hope into, like money, wealth. I put hope into job success, job performance, achieving all the things that if I just had those things and life would finally be comfortable and I'd finally be content. All those things we put hope in that could be an idol. I wonder sometimes if we put hope in um, the God of, of the gun, of war, of violence. We put hope in war and violence as a way to solve our world's problems. I wonder if that could be an idol sometimes. I've even put hope into certain scripture verses that maybe back up my own prejudices or my own views of God that box God in. And when I put my hope into those few verses that I like the best and I ignore the bigger picture of who God is, that can even become an idol in itself, our interpretation of the Bible. We put our hope in beautiful celebrities and athletes. If we just looked like them, they look so happy in their Instagram feeds. If we just had the success that they had and we looked like them, then we'd be happy that can be an idol. But we know that's not true. And we hear this horrible, sad stories of Robin Williams and Anthony Bourdain who struggle with so much depression and, and anxiety and sadness. And they have the wealth. They have the celebrity status. We put our hope in politics, political candidates who say that they can make everything better. We put all our hope and trust in that. It can be an idol. We have our own idols. We have our own things that we put our hope and trust in. But Paul wasn't just adding Jesus to the list of gods for Athens. Paul was saying that all of the things that you're putting your hope in, they're powerless. 
They are completely powerless. They are pieces of wood and stone. He's saying, I'm offering to you a God that is truly powerful. And not in the sense of the Roman Empire waging war and taking over kingdoms, but powerful in the sense of mercy and love and setting the table that has a place for every single person. And so as Paul began to spread that message of Jesus as the new king, in contrast to Caesar and Rome, more and more people started to join in. Some people said, I don't want anything to do with this. This guy's crazy. Some people said... Um, I'm not so sure. I'd like to hear more. And some people said, I want to be a part of this. And so the early church began to grow and it became known for having a table of bread and wine where every person could sit at and be equal, regardless of economic status, race, gender, of job, social status. So Christianity spread with that core value that all people have a place at the table. All people have equal value and worth and dignity. And we will treat all people with respect and love. Because when Paul says, we are all offspring of God. Aaron Walton from Matthew 7 it says, everyone who asks receives, whoever seeks finds, everyone who knocks the door is opened. There is an interesting line in this sermon that Paul gives that has so much promise. It says that God allotted the time and place for each of, that each of us would live. Where we live, where we're born, and, and, and where in the world that we were born. He says that God allotted that so that everything about our lives is designed so that we can go through this process of looking and searching for God. He says that God made our lives so that we can search and look for God. And he saw in all of these gods and then this, this one God of the unknown, that these people are searching and looking. Acts 17, God made the nation so they would seek him and even reach out to him and find him. In fact, God isn't far away from any of us. In God, we live and move and exist. And some of your own poets said we are his offspring. We are searching for, for God, for purpose, for meaning, for contentment, for happiness. That searching is a good thing. That's a sacred thing. It's important. That's what you're made to do, to look. But here's the irony, is that it's not in all of these idols and things that you put your hope in. It is inside of you. The answer to what you're searching for, God, for purpose, for hope, for meaning, it's inside of you. It is in God that you live and move and have your very existence inside of you. What you're looking for the whole time is inside of you. Aaron is a, a disciples pastor on the East Coast. He said, the unknown God is not unknowable, but is sought after and made known through our neighbor. God is not in churches and buildings and temples and idols. God is in people, human beings. When you look at your neighbor, you see God. St. Augustine from the 4th century said to fall in love with God is the greatest romance 
to seek him the greatest adventure, to find him the greatest human achievement. Paul said the irony is he is in you. You found him if you just look inside of you. God is within you. Paul says in Colossians, Christ is all and in all. The hope, the purpose, the meaning, the contentment of life that we're looking for. It's right here. Look in the mirror. You can find it. Because God is in you. Deepak Chopra said, how can you seek God if he's already here? It's like standing in the ocean and crying out, I want to get wet. You want to get over the line to God, it turns out he was always there. Through every moment, through every good moment and happy moment, through every moment where you thought, what the hell is happening in my life? God was right there the whole time because you were there and God is in you. Love is in you. Hope is in you. And when you look at another human being in the eye, you are seeing God, that person. In him, in God, in her, we live, we move, we have our being. Jesus said, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me, he said. How you treat your neighbor, how you treat yourself, is how you treat God, is how you treat Christ. God, people are so intimately tied together. God is not just in books and Bibles and this spacey idea. God is in people. Last Saturday, I heard a story that just embodied um, the idea of being Christ to people. When we search for God, we we come across brokenness in our world. And when we come across that brokenness, we have an opportunity to embody the very one that restores and makes whole. I saw an example of this uh, last Saturday at Pittsburgh Pride Parade. Scott Dittman was wearing a shirt that said, Free Dad Hugs. And he was thinking of uh, all the LGBT community who felt rejection from family. So he showed up at Pride with free dad hugs. And he received over 700 hugs in just a couple hours. That's a lot of bodies (laughs) on you. And he said two of them really, really, really stuck out to him. And he posted about it on Facebook. And he said, parents... A handful of us went to Pride today, supporting our, sporting our free dad hugs and free mom hugs t-shirts. We gave out hundreds of hugs, and these two stuck out. Let me tell you about these. He said, the man was kicked out at 19 when his parents found out he was gay. They haven't spoken to him since. He cried on my shoulder and sobbed. He squeezed me with everything he had, and I felt a tiny bit of that pain that he carries every minute of every day. He was abandoned because of who he loves, and on June 9th, 2019, he was participating in a celebration of love when he was brought to his emotional knees by a shirt that said, Free Dad Hugs on a Complete Stranger. Her story 
I don't know the specifics, but I know that she saw me from across the street and I wasn't paying attention. By the time she got to me, she had tears in her eyes. She stood in front of me and looked up at me and with a look of sadness and helplessness that I'll never forget. And she hugged me with everything that she had. And I hugged her back. She held on for so long, melting into me and thanked me endlessly. I can't stop thinking about her. What must be going through uh, her life with her family, the ones who are supposed to be there for her no matter what? Who does she go to when she needs advice on love, money, life? Who does she share old memories with that only her parents would have been there for? What are her holidays like? How often does she hope for that phone call with unconditional love on the other end? So I don't know her story, but it doesn't feel like a huge leap to assume she's lost those who should love her the most and forever. He kind of uh, gives a sermon to parents. He says, imagine that, parents. Imagine that your child feels so lost from you that they sink into the arms of a complete stranger and sob endlessly just because that stranger is wearing a shirt offering hugs from a dad. Think of the depths of their pain. Try to imagine how deep those cuts must be. Please don't be the parent of a child that has to shoulder that burden. I met way too many of them today. He said, if by chance anyone knows these folks in the picture, please let them know they can reach out anytime. And if they need a surrogate dad to talk to, I'll be there. LGBT youth who experience rejection from family are eight times more likely to commit suicide. One in four say that their biggest problem in life is not feeling connected to their family. To search for God in our world means that when we come across brokenness in our searching, hurting, our role, our purpose is to let God who lives in us flow through us so that the people we come across who seem hurt and broken experience love and wholeness and healing. Let Christ, who is already in you, just flow out of you. Let love just flow out of you. That is what it means to bring the kingdom of God to this world. That is what will change this world. That is a big job that you have a helper we talked about last week. Her name is Holy Spirit. She is in you. She is powerful. She is feminine. She is in you. The early church was so radical because it offered a table, bread and wine, to every person regardless of religion, political beliefs, economic status, gender. The early church was so radical because they taught that worshiping God wasn't about going to a church or a temple or sacrificing Worshiping God was about how you treat your neighbor as yourself. That is what worshiping God is. That is what it means to connect with God, to love God, love your neighbor. And so every Sunday when we have our bread and wine, this is a representation of 
what the early church was known for and what the church today should be. Should be known for. But it's not. Yet. There is hope. The church will once again be known for its radical inclusion, radical love for all people. It starts, it doesn't start with pastors giving sermons. It starts with you all, with every person that you come in contact with, with every relationship that you have, embodying love and just being aware that it is in God, it is in love. God is love. That you live and move and have your very being. It is in love. So we're gonna take communion. All are welcome, line up. Whenever you are ready and in the next moments. We'll take a little piece of bread, dip it in the juice. As a reminder, you take and eat and drink Christ. His body, his blood, broken and poured out for us, is in you. Power. Raise Christ from the dead. Heal that brought wholeness to people who were hurting is in you. Despite insecurity, despite fear, stress, who you are. God, may you live through us and may every moment of our existence, may we be aware of your life, your love and your power and your peace in us. But may we put our hope in you and your values, the values of your kingdom, the values of grace, of mercy, of forgiveness, of gratitude, of joy, of laughter. We thank you for the people who make up Mission Gathering, those who are here and those who are not. May they be a light in this world when it seems dark. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace.